0: A podcast from Premier Unbelievable.
1: Well, hello and welcome to Matters of Life and Death. Um, As always, I'm Tim Wyatt and I'm joined by my dad, John Wyatt. Hi, John.
2: Hi, good to be here.
1: And um, we're this is the second part of our conversation with our with our guest uh, Dr. Melody Redman. Hi, Melody. Thanks for coming on again. Hello. Uh, as as we talked about last week uh, in quite a lot of detail, Melody's uh, a geneticist uh, working uh, with the NHS um, and. Um, I really encourage you to go back and listen to last week's episode if you haven't already because that will inform a lot of what we talk about today. Um, but today we wanted to to move the conversation on to a particular new program that's just starting in the NHS. Uh, it's called the Newborn Genomes program. Uh, and it's a plan the NHS is, is currently kind of consulting on and exploring and hoping to get up running which would um, sequence and analyze uh, the genomes of, of newborn babies. Um, uh, if I'm right, there are there already is some limited, uh, analysis of, of of newborns screened for for a few conditions is that right melody
0: Yes, that's correct. So um, on day five of life, normally, uh, as many parents who are listening to this might remember, um, the baby will have a little heel prick test done um, and then that um, little bit of blood will get sent off. And we normally look for about nine conditions that would be important to know about um, as a baby, because there's important implications for um, treatments that can really affect um, that baby growing up.
1: So I guess what's important to make clear is, is the way that, that kind of gene testing works is that you don't, once you get someone, you know, a sample of someone's blood, you don't just stick it in and then look for the whole and identify all 20,000 genes that we talked about last week. But you, you normally look for what's called a panel of particular genes. And so if I'm, is the change in this new NHS programme is that it would be looking for much, much broader range than just the current nine conditions?
0: so the testing would be called whole genome sequencing and i think it's helpful to just explore what that means a little bit so whole genome sequencing so the genome is all of our complete set of genetic information which includes our 20,000 or so genes and um so that that's sequencing i.e. um storing the information around the dna code of the whole of our genome However, even though all of that information would be um, sequenced from a kind of laboratory point of view, not all of that information is analysed because there's just so much information there. So what you would do instead is you would apply a panel of genes, i.e. you would only be looking at a certain number of genes um, and you would just analyse if there are, is there anything that stands out, any unusual variation in those genes.
1: And is the intent in this simply to try and capture more unusual conditions beyond those nine that we already look for? Is it just simply about saying we now have a technology or it's affordable enough to actually look much broader than the original nine? Or is there kind of a bigger vision behind this program?
0: There is a big vision behind this program, which I'll I'll talk about, Um, but just to say that some of this is all kind of subject to change a little bit because the official pilot for this isn't due to start for another few months yet, so it's due to start in mid-2023, so some of the information is not fully decided yet. So, for example, it is not decided how many genes would be looked at and how many genetic conditions would be looked at, so that is still to be decided. There are three main aims of the project. So the first aim that they talk about is identifying rare disease in babies. Um, And the pilot that they'd be doing would be trying to understand how feasible it is to use this test as a way to identify rare and important diseases in babies. Um, And so, you know, as part of that, for example, they'd be looking at how many false positives do we find where we find a genetic change that we think might be relevant and um have to do further testing on that baby, but then it turns out not to be relevant. Um a second strand, um a second aim that they have is about research and trying to understand better um more about genomic information and how we use that kind of big data. Um, And also then potentially opening the door for further treatments um, and sort of the development of new drugs for these conditions that can occur in childhood then the third aim of the project is to look about creating a sort of a lifetime resource where um the genetic the genomic data would be stored across that individual's lifetime and that's kind of thinking about sort of ethical aspects there about sort of risks and benefits of storing that information and what are the practical implications and ethical implications for that family so One part of it is about trying to diagnose these conditions. And then the other two parts are looking at research and using it as a lifetime resource.
2: So it is an extraordinary uh, new kind of development, isn't it? Um, In a way, people have been talking about this for a long time, but it's interesting that uh, Genomics England should be one of the pioneers in terms of planning to take every single baby um store uh, obtain a dna sample shortly after birth uh both analyze it to look for rare diseases but also then put it away lock it away in the laboratory so that for the rest of your life the rest of this child's life the dna is there stored and potentially available
0: yes i mean it's it's a hugely complex area and you know it's something that's been really important to to watch evolve and contribute to discussions wherever possible because actually this would be a huge shift from what we're doing currently and there are all sorts of potential implications about storing this data and you know for example the parents would be consenting on behalf of the baby and so how do we then manage that do we go back to the child when they're 16 and say okay now you can decide are you happy for this data to still be stored and you know who who should really have the rights over that genetic information Um, and also where do we draw the line in things that we want to identify should we be identifying things that will only affect the child when they are A baby or should we look should we set an age of well you know if it's a condition that appears before the age of five then that should be our threshold for identifying these conditions and i think you know one of the really interesting well challenging areas really will be looking at how it impacts um that parent's development of the relationship with their child so if you know your child's going to develop a serious condition from uh, you know around the age of five although of course we can never predict predict these things exactly then actually does that affect the way that you bond with the child the way that you um, treat them as a baby even though there's no direct implications at that time it's hugely challenging and you know there's so many big questions around this
1: one of the things that's slightly confusing to me about the program is that it, it says that they would so you obviously you wouldn't just do the test when the child is born but as you say you store the 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 sample in a big kind of library of 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 genomes um but they it says they'll be kind of de-identified um uh so you can't i guess um it's not it's not going to be listed under your name as it were It'd just be a dna sample of a of a human being to allow kind of research and that kind of thing but then they also say that that it will be a lifetime genomic record, which you could be reanalyzed in 30, 40 years time when we have new technology. So how is that possible if it's been de-identified? I don't quite follow how it's going to be simultaneously this kind of resource for yourself and also a huge kind of library for for other research.
0: We all have a unique um, genomic code, genetic code. So actually you can never truly anonymize someone's um, genomic sequence because it would be unique to them but you can de-identify it by storing the sort of identifying information such as name, date of birth etc in a separate area and we do currently have um, something called the National Genomics Research Library which is is um, storing information where families consent, their um, Genomic sequence is stored as part of this national library and people can apply to access it and they have to go through kind of a, a proper application process. So not just anyone could access it, but what they could ultimately access is de-identified. So without your name information to try and, you know, if, if it's a researcher who wants to analyze that um controversially, there are also, you know, potentials in the future that that could be used for commercial reasons although you know there are sort of promises that it would never be able to be accessed by insurance companies for example but you know it's a really important question of who should be able to access that information and what can that information be used for and we're at very early stages at the moment of this kind of development of this national resource and certainly through the newborn um, screening whole genome screening process again there's lots of questions about how how could that information be used in the future
2: and it does seem as though england in many ways is pushing ahead faster than most other countries in the world in this kind of area Uh, and why do you think that is why should england be uh, seen as as pioneering um this highly controversial and and experimental approach
0: so there was a commitment in the nhs long-term plan um to deliver a certain amount of genomic testing so the newborn um screening wasn't part of that commitment but there was a real commitment to make um, England and to make the NHS a a pioneer and a world leader in genomic testing and you know if we look back historically if we look back sort of 10 years ago when London was hosting the Olympics David Cameron who was the Prime Minister at the time had announced the 100,000 Genomes Project Um, and again kind of historically we've seen Um, So so the 100,000 Genomes Project was a project to sequence 100,000 genomes um, which was a huge task. It took um, around six years and this newborn whole genome um, sequencing project has kind of arisen as a further step out of the success of that project. And we do see over the past and over recent years, there is a real push in our country to be seen as world leaders in this area but we have to be really careful of course when we're pushing forward with new technologies just because we can do something of course it doesn't always mean that we should do something and we need to always be evaluating well what are the potential consequences if we do do this
2: and and is it primarily coming from the politicians is it coming from the genetic scientists themselves Is is it coming from commercial, you know, the commercial potential, Uh, or or is it all of those? How do you, what are the drivers behind this? Do you think?
0: I think there's a real combination, and I think that you know, genomic data and this concept of having access to big data, it is potentially a very powerful tool. And there are lots of people who could benefit from that. And um, so I think there are lots of key players who are, who are really pushing this forward. Um, and so I think, you know, it's the combination of all of those efforts really that are trying to push this forward.
2: And so then the question of course, is then how as a parent, um, is the idea that every parent would be approached and, and and explain what this uh, whole genome screening program was counseled about the implications um and asked whether they wish their own baby to be part of the screening program is is that the is that the proposal?
0: so there there's not a a crisply clear published plan of exactly how the kind of counseling and things will work um and i don't don't have any kind of further access to information about that um but I think it is something certainly as a clinician that I think will be a really important area. Whenever we are doing whole genome sequencing as a test, we spend a great deal of time discussing with families the potential implications. And there are a lot of different potential implications. And it's something that families really need a lot of time to consider and a lot of information to consider. And so that sort of counseling about the testing will be hugely important. For me as a clinician, I have concerns about resources. And so, you know, at the moment it's taking nearly a year for us to get a lot of our results back for patients who were doing whole genome sequencing on and you know we have have a hugely stretched service already and there are huge issues around um, both the sort of clinical genetics side of things and the lab genetics side of things and ensuring that there are enough resources and for this project to go ahead I think we need to be really careful acknowledging that there are huge resource issues and making sure that Families still get the time that they need to consider if this is actually something that they want to go ahead with.
1: Is there another issue around kind of the concept of giving informed consent? I mean, people will be familiar with the idea that you know before you um, you know go for an operation or, or or any kind of treatment. The doctor sits you down and and says, you know, I need to inform you so that you can give informed consent about whether you want to go ahead with this. And obviously, as you you mentioned, it will be the parents giving consent on behalf of their child. But it's quite hard for, for that to be truly informed because we don't know what it will mean to store my child's DNA for the whole of their life because we have no idea in 2060 what implications having a full sequence of my genome will have and what new diseases i might find what new treatments might be available what the the cost benefit analysis of that will be so it strikes me that giving truly informed consent for something so far reaching is is quite difficult
0: yeah you're absolutely right tim and we we are very careful in genetics when we think about the concept of consent because you know as you've, you've talked about going for surgery a surgeon will often outline all of the possible outcomes so bleeding infection death even etc whereas when we are doing genetic testing because we are potentially testing for so many different things we can't go through every possible outcome so we can't really do this this what we would historically call fully informed consent so the findings that we might get from from testing could be quite complex they could be uncertain they could be unexpected and rather than talking about all of the different individual conditions often what we would do is talk about the the types of results that we might find so for example an an unexpected finding, Um, and so we we often talk about having a record of discussion rather than a patient signing a consent form, as might be done for surgical procedures. You're listening to Matters of Life and Death from premier unbelievable
1: I wonder if you have if you're aware of or have any thoughts on on the kind of concerns that some people including Christians might have about the kind of implications for society about building up an enormous library of 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 children's um genomes uh, people you know some people fear there might be kind of authoritarian political implications if if a future government is able to kind of access and identify everyone's genetic information that we're kind of giving away something quite personal and, and quite intimate and and not really sure if the people that we we can trust those who hold on to it. I don't know if you have any thoughts on on that angle or how you'd respond to concerns if a parent raised them, some of those issues.
0: I think that um from what I can understand of this process so far that that parents will be given a choice as to whether or not they will allow their data to also be used for the research purposes. Although again, that's not completely clear. When we are doing whole genome sequencing for for patients at the moment, we give them a choice as to whether or not they want to be part of that um, library of information. And it's always important to make sure their family understand what they're signing up to. the you have raised an issue uh, a bigger issue about sort of that the idea of big data and i think that we have to be really careful with big data because we've seen historically examples of how this can be really positive and you know we can on a population level identify uh, through big data we've been able to identify things like modifiable risk factors for certain conditions and that can be really helpful information but We have also seen examples in society of big data being used for commercial gain or for other harmful purposes. And so I think, you know, it is a really challenging area deciding um, as an individual if you would want to be. If you'd want your um, genomic information to be stored that way and as we've discussed genomic in- information is unique to you so even though it can be anonymized uh, it cannot be anonymized it would be de-identified and that's again quite an important concept to think about carefully and you know as christians we see an example example in in the bible that i often think of thinking about the tower of babel and you know that um if we try and make us a name for ourselves um, we need to be really careful that what we're doing is um, sort of aligning with God's will, rather than trying to n- make a name for ourselves as a country or as a profession, um, because you know otherwise there can be a harmful fallout from that. I think big data is a really complex area, and there's lots of sort of difficult things to discuss about that.
2: I mean, if you're it's taking a sort of slightly cynical or fatalistic view, you could say that basically we can't put the DNA genie back in the bottle. Um, ultimately, everyone is going to have their DNA sequenced, whether we like it or not, and it's going to be obtained in by fair means or foul. And therefore, maybe it's better to do it in this sort of highly regulated, carefully examined, publicly accountable method rather than in a more covert Uh, ways i mean think about the police building up its own dna database um i i suspect that once a a national database is available there will be all kinds of implications um for law enforcement for um forensics of all kinds of of different implications but maybe we can't we can't stop that maybe it's it's going to happen anyway What, what do you think about that
0: i certainly know that the individuals that are running this newborn whole genome sequencing project are very keen on on establishing trust, and they know that trust is necessary for the success of this project. And so they want to kind of encourage that. Um, so I think that's kind of on an individual level, Um, individuals who are pushing this forward really want the public to trust this and therefore are are very careful about how the data will be used. Um, But of course, you know, over time data can be used in different ways and things that were previously not thought to be acceptable might end up becoming acceptable. uh, something that always comes to mind for me, I'm not sure if if many people here have, have watched the film Gattaca, I would really encourage you to watch it. Um, it's about a sort of um, neo-dystopian future where um, individuals in society are um, sort of viewed based on their genetic code and their place in society is determined by their genetic code. And it's a really interesting film that explores that further. And I think it's really important for us as Christians to be really careful of um, health inequalities that could arise as a result of, of, um, of understanding someone's genomic information. Because actually, you know, if you have an increased risk of cancers, for example, in the family, you have no control over that. It's not like you can, you're you a smoker and you can stop smoking or that um, you don't exercise enough and you can do more exercise. Actually, you have no influence over your genetic code. And, you know, we should really be careful to be, be a voice for the vulnerable and make sure that individuals wouldn't be discriminated in that way. And of course, there is absolutely no intention for that at the present time, but it would be remiss of us to not think about possible ways that data could be misused and to not try and safeguard against those for the future
1: yeah i'd really echo that actually i've seen gattaca and it's a really fascinating and concerning kind of imagination of what might happen in in the future around dna testing and, and genomes and and it strikes me i mean i was reading something just the other day about um a growing kind of use of um genomic genomic sequencing in in IVF in in the States in particular where it's quite unregulated which there are certain companies that are now giving um, parents the the chance to kind of create several embryos through IVF and then genetically sequence each of them and choose the ones not just the ones that don't have, you know, a predisposition to breast cancer, but choose the ones which have genes associated with high intelligence or athletic prowess, or, or, or various other supposedly desirable traits. And, and the, the, the author of this blog I read was kind of suggesting this could be a kind of novel version of genetic eugenics, almost in which, you know, we are creating, trying to kind of meddle and create an, and create a new kind of superclass of humans based on based on their genes.
0: Absolutely. And even um, even if we take out of the equation anyone's views on how they feel about rep- reproductive technologies, if we think about who can access these resources, choosing the superior embryos, as it were, of course, it's going to be those that can afford to pay for it. And so even if if, if we don't think about any of the ethical implications of reproductive technologies, we can already see that there will be, there would be new health inequalities imposed if if someone that can afford to pay for a superior embryo is then able to do that, as opposed to someone else who can't afford to do that.
2: So I suppose one of the things that's behind this, which I'm really interested in, is is an idea which is often called genetic determinism, which is basically that you know we're 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 biological machines and we're programmed by our DNA and the more we understand about DNA, the more we're then able to predict um, how people will behave. And, um, and in the end, uh, it, this leads to a kind of devaluing of, of, of a, a reductionist understanding of what it means to be human. Uh, do you think that, that, that those ideas are, are sort of gaining more currency in popular culture?
0: If we take in a clinical example, so one of the services that the NHS office is um, predictive testing for Huntington's disease. So Huntington's um, is a really, um, sort of um, difficult disorder where um, someone will deteriorate and if they have that condition um, then there's a 50% or one in two chance that each of their children will be affected by that condition and in the NHS we offer testing for children once they've, you know, reached adulthood, once they're 18 or above, to access testing to see if they will develop Huntington's disease. And it's something quite different to a lot of the other testing that we do because, um, first of all, a fam- an individual will have to have quite a lot of counselling before, before we agree to do that testing. But secondly, if we do find that they do carry the the genetic change that means that they will develop Huntington's, we cannot tell them what symptoms they will start with, we cannot tell them what age the condition will start at and so they just have this vague understanding of at some time in the future they will develop Huntington's disease. Now of course there's a million and one things that could happen in between that, you know they might get hit by a bus one day before they ever reach the age where they would have developed Huntington's and having that knowledge um for some individuals it's really empowering and they will make different life decisions and you know i saw a great example of of, um someone who got really involved with a huntington's disease charity and helping other people because he knew that he some at some point would likely develop that condition but we also um see families where there's Um, family breakdown once someone knows that they have that condition they think actually you know I don't want to have my own children I don't want to be with a partner because I don't want them to see this happen to me later in life and so having an understanding of something that um, that would happen in the future if you live to the age where you would develop it It's actually has huge implications for the way that you live day to day in the meantime and it's really hard to know um, if an individual would use that information in a positive way or in a negative way and even if they do use it in a positive way, it's hard to fully understand what's going on in their mind on a day to day basis of having to process the knowledge that 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 will happen at some point in their life.
1: And I guess further from that, do you think as Christians we need to actively resist the idea that we are kind of prisoners of our biology and that what is written into our genome it determines not just our kind of physical characteristics and whether we have a certain disease, but who we are as people? And actually, as Christians, we have to constantly be trying to re found our identity in, in who we are in Christ and the image of God, not in what we're looking on the inside of our, of our, of our genome.
0: I couldn't agree more I think you know our identity as as Christians is as children of God and we know that the genome is corrupt and mad and we know that um we have a hope in in an eternal hope that of restoration and um you know some I'm not saying it's negative to always know this information because it definitely for some families can be really helpful and really empowering but it can also be it's just really something that we shouldn't become sort of really preoccupied by because actually, yes, our identity is as children of God. We might be children of God who on this earth have X condition and we must be compassionate to recognise that actually a lot of genetic conditions can be completely life-changing and, you know, really difficult for families to manage and we must always be compassionate about that. But first and foremost, we are, our identity is in being children of God rather than in our genome
1: well we're kind of running out of time but just, just before we end um Melody there might be people listening to this who've who've been quite personally affected by what we have be talking about who have some experience of this uh in their in their own families um is there any kind of resources or any way you could signpost people to if they wanted to pursue this
0: there's a really good um, charity called Unique, which we'll, we'll share the link for, but it's rarechromo.org. And that's a really helpful website, which sort of is quite a generic one um, that explores lots of different sort of chromosomal and some genetic disorders as well. For... Um, very specific conditions there are lots of um specific patient support groups as well and i think quite often it can be helpful for individuals to be connected with other families Um, but also if if this has affected you because you know someone who has a genetic condition or has difficult difficult decisions to make around this area you know it's really important to walk alongside people and to be there to listen to them and explore these areas with because they are new ish areas and they're hard for people to wrestle with and different families will come to different decisions about what's right for them and um, so you know walking alongside someone and being there through these difficult um, discussions and difficult decisions can be really powerful as well
1: brilliant yeah thank you so much melody it's been absolutely fascinating having you this week and last week um digging through this really interesting area of genetics um we're so grateful for your expertise and your time um and thanks as always uh, john and, and thank you to the listener thank you for, for going on this journey with us i hope it's you found it interesting and useful um as always there's, there's lots of resources including stuff on this area if you want to to read uh, or, or listen or watch to on on john's website that's johnwyatt.com. Um, And you can get in touch with us um, by emailing molad, M-O-L-A-D, at premier.org.uk. But otherwise, um, thanks for listening, uh, and we'll see you next week. Bye-bye.
2: You've been listening to Matters of Life and Death, a podcast from Premier
1: Unbelievable.